and we are sending good thoughts out to uh, French actress Catherine Deneuve, who suffered a uh, minor stroke this yeah. week, yeah. but um, apparently is recovering, but uh, sending good, good thoughts out for, for her full recovery. One of the all-time great yes. randoms of the movies. Yes, yes. Not just beautiful. Uh, Umbrellas of uh, Cherbourg. Cherbourg. Oh, my gosh. You know. Aside from being a beautiful movie, it really is a beautiful movie. Yeah. Uh, she, what is she, maybe 16, 17 in that movie? I don't know. Like 19. Really maybe. young. Yeah, super uh, young. R- ridiculously young. And she's just so mature yeah. in that movie and always has yeah. been. She, um, you know, her, you know, the, she's from that uh, era. Her, Bardot, uh, yeah. they're all from yeah. the same. Yeah. Uh, Jen Moreau's a little, little, little older. A little bit older. Yeah. Uh, but she was never a kitten, a sex kitten. No. As beautiful as any of them. No. But never a sex kid. No, it was always the sort of intelligent thing yeah, that she yeah. had going on. And that's and a lot of that is owed to. I mean, she kind of came up with uh, along with her sister, who is in the Young Girls of Rushford with her, and then her sister died in that horrible car yeah. accident prematurely. Would have been a big star as well. Yeah, you know, was already on her way. It was it was a bigger actress at the time. Uh, very very sad. But uh, Catherine Deneuve still with us, still acting, still uh, absolutely wonderful. So sending all of our good thoughts out. We got a big show uh, this week. We are we have an interview with the filmmakers of The Swan Princess, which is out in a 25th anniversary Blu-ray, which we'll be talking about a little bit later, uh, and which I have a great story that goes along with that. But uh, first, we're, we we mostly we got new movies, and then we have a lot of catalog stuff, like a lot of catalog stuff. Most of it, Kino. Kino has has come out just with an unbelievable blitz of material in the last few weeks, and it's it's really an extraordinary bunch of stuff. So we want to put all of that on your radar, mm. and uh, I'm just going to dive right into it. I, uh, I, I did want to ask you about something. Oh yeah, go you ahead. Know, it's getting me that time of the year where we, where we start to get swag. Oh yeah, you know because you know yeah, oh. so award season. Yeah, There's some big awards. So last night over in uh, Santa Monica, something. Uh, I don't even know, I, but it's like the first one of the season. I haven't opened that yet. You haven't opened that yet? I haven't. I've been the, afraid the, to take the shrink wrap off. The, the thing, I have. And I, and I used to not. I would just leave them wrapped I, like, up I forever. Knew, I, knew that that, I knew what it was the second I got it. I thought, oh, it's becoming the annual Jordan Peele thing. It's the, and, and you know what? They go big. They do. They go big. It's the but, big old book that we're talking about. Yeah. Co- you know, about what coffee table size? Not that yep. big, but for it's big us. For, for us. us. For the movie Us, the book is called Pieces of Us. And what he yeah. what they do in this book is he goes through and he explains every piece of symbolism yeah. in the film. That's so great. all of that stuff that folks have been like, well, what did this mean? And what did yeah. that mean? What Jordan just go through the year. Here it is. This is what it means. Here it is. Well, and this is what it they, means. They, but they, they, this is what this is what set, this is what I think won him the Oscar last time, right? Mm-hmm. Was that they sent out that big old book. Mm-hmm. Which get said, out that get out. That they, yeah. It was it was a big old beautiful get out. Yeah, the the, the sunken place and yeah. you know it and what it said was we know you enjoyed the movie, but now we're going to give you some some reasons why you should watch it again. Yeah, and realize it's a it's a more meaningful and a deeper movie than you. Th- even realize at this point in time. We want you to understand that Jordan Peele is not just telling, he's not just a horror filmmaker, it's not suspense and whatnot. There's some real thought. He's an artist. Yeah, yeah. And there's some real thought to this. And that book, everyone who got that book, that was money well spent. Oh, yeah. They got that book and they thought, Oh. oh, and a lot of it is confirming. You know, we yeah. you know we watch these movies and we yeah. think, just, I think I know what's going on there. And Jordan, uh, so it's, that, it's a lot of fun. And I used to never open those things because I was you know figure out selling on eBay uh, years from now. But nah, I don't do that anymore. I, I, I sort of pieced them out. It to even the has a time code. It even has a time code at this point in the movie. 
go to this time code oh and you'll see this thing goodness. and this one. And what I do like is uh, you know, a good a, a good bit of it. I, I kind of figured out. I was I was moving along with it. I'm like, okay, okay. Oh, yeah. I think I understand what the hell this wacky Red's movie is about. Apple. <laughs> no kidding. He gives a he, he, there's a Bible quote. Yeah. No yeah. kidding. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Oh my goodness. And the reason for it and what it all means. I you know, I oh, I rather goodness. enjoy that. Uh so Jordan Jordan's not just fooling around, he's actually making movies about stuff. See, I love that. In I mean, the genre. In, in, the, in genre. the genre. But he's doing it, he's doing it with so much forethought. Yeah. 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 I love that. Yeah. Yeah, I he's, really, he's, really he's love the, that. He's the kind of the reverse of Eli Roth. <laughs> who, who just throws it all through the... Just just get some people and throw them through a, a blender or whatever, a meat grinder. Let's just do that. Oh. I mean, if you because the thing, if you think about it, Us, is it a horror film? Yeah. There's not really, not really. a lot. Yeah. There's not a lot of... There's not a lot of... I mean, there's some violence in it, but relatively little. Yeah, yeah. It's psychological. Is, it's is, all is psychological. You know, yeah. yeah. I wrote a little essay about it. You can find it. You read it over at the... Uh, uh, the our, our website, the Cinegolf oh, website. See the apple. Now the candied apple has all this new <laughs> all meaning for me. Oh, meaning. that's so fantastic. Yeah. Oh, that's so fantastic. No, there's a, you know, Luke, oh, that, now, now I've got to go pull the, pull the wrapping. That's fantastic. <laughs> um, uh, Luke Thompson, mm-hmm. our good friend Luke, colleague Luke, uh, Luke has a, had a take on it that was utterly fascinating. Mm-hmm. Utterly fascinating, which I had, it didn't even occur to me, and it should have. Um, because Jordan's mom is white. Mm-hmm. And Luke said this movie is basically about being torn between two cultures mm-hmm. and two identities and wrestling with that. And I thought, oh, my gosh. And Luke's uh, understanding of it, he said, because that's where I came from. Because, you know, Luke's from Ireland. Mm-hmm. And so he he grew up here with this kind of, you know, he had an Irish education and upbringing and then, you know, adapting to America. And, and, and there's, a, there's a certain pull on that in that same sense. So he feels the same thing. And I thought, well, hell, you know, I'm half German. I grew up with, like, at family gatherings where I couldn't understand a word that anybody was saying. Like, yeah. I relate to that, too. Mm. On a certain level, anyone who has sort of a biculturality, or if you're biracial, or if you sort of come from two conflicting worlds, is going to relate to that. It, 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 that it, should it, have that, dawned on me. That duality thing when you look at yeah. the scissors, you know. Yeah, the, you know, yeah, the, that's, the, the, that's it. That's it. The that duality thing, and uh, and you know, and they don't work at all unless they're together. Yeah, uh, you know, a pair of scissors that's broken apart is really like a completely useless thing. So that duality yeah. thing is going on there, and he's definitely, definitely speaking to that. Even in a deeper way than just the race, the mother and the father thing, yeah. you know, just it's just what these dualities bring. One side of the duality brings you all kinds of things. Yeah. So living because his mother is who his mother was, yeah. Jordan grew up on the Upper East Side of Manhattan. Yeah, uh, because of that side of his family. Yeah. The other side of his family didn't live on the Upper East Side of Manhattan. <laughs> they, they live down in the hood. Yeah, and you know, you're this kid, and you got this like, oh. You know, because of that, this. Because yeah. of that, this. And all of that is all the way through that movie, and it's really, really... It's, uh, yeah, I, it's, it's, it's interesting, because when it came out, everybody was saying, oh, it's going to be another Oscar run for Jordan Peele, and that kind of faded from the conversation yeah. as we get into Jojo Rabbit and a few other things. You know, the, the, the late year stuff always sort, sort of overshadows the earlier year stuff, but... This is a smart campaign. Yeah. It's got people talking got and thinking people, again. again yeah, so, so um, you know, I don't know if they're going to give him another Oscar. There's a lot of con- a lot of contenders, but I'll tell you this, it's it's in the running. Yeah. And yeah. it's going to get and Lapita's going to get nominated. Nominated for sure. For sure. Yeah, that's so that's a that's a that's a done deal. She's got her nomination locked up. So Yeah, that was that's a hell of a yeah, performance. Yeah. Love the book. Oh yeah, my love goodness. The book. Great book. Keep an eye out for that. Book. Pieces of us. 
The swag we get. And we're going to get a lot more of it. <laughs> oh, so much. Screeners are already pouring on me and, and, and whatnot. But I will also say this as long as we're here. Uh, Ford versus Ferrari. Mm. I have not enjoyed a movie that much in years. In years. What an absolute and utter blast. Yeah. I, yesterday, three times, I remembered a scene from the movie. And I laughed out loud and embarrassed my family in public. <laughs> it's like, what are you laughing at? What's so funny? I was just thinking of, thinking of this scene in Ford versus Ford. Really? You're thinking of a scene. You were just thinking of a scene and you're laughing out loud. Uh, it's a funny scene. Uh, what can I tell you? It's a really, really, really good scene. Uh, it's a really good scene. Oh, anyway. All right. Well, let's. Uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to dive in here with some... Uh, we're going to break up all the catalog stuff. And then we're going to do some of the new movies. And then get back to catalog stuff. In the end, we're going to wrap out with the uh, the Swan Princess interview. Uh, some really good stuff from Kino, the Kino Classics. Not the, the Studio Classics line, but the regular classics. Uh, a lot of really wonderful stuff here. Uh, but first, before I get into that, is the uh, Zeitgeist release. We talked about this some weeks ago, and uh, they are releasing it uh, officially again, which is uh, Tom Sachs' a Space Program, the director's cut on Blu-ray from Zeitgeist through Kino. And uh, this is Tom Sachs doing it. This is a really kind of very interesting avant-garde-ish Effort. We talked about it uh, originally the first time. Just want to put this back at everybody's uh, radar again. This is Tom Sachs is kind of a, you know a, a, a more than just a filmmaker. He's a he's a, 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 a an artist, a performance not a performance artist, but like a an installation artist. And uh, it's about you know building the uh, the the space program in this kind of art installment. And uh, it's uh, it's very very interesting. This includes the theatrical cut and some short films by Tom Sachs. Really, really very interesting. It's, um, you know, he's just, he's, he's an unusual guy. And this is uh, effectively drawn from his uh, uh, historic uh, art presentation, Space Program 2.0 Mars. So worth checking out. Uh, Tom Sachs' Space Program, the director's cut. Uh, really, really interesting stuff. So now from the Kino Classics line, here's, here's what we got. My goodness, it's, it's sort of all over the map, but it's all really, really interesting stuff. And uh, the most important one of all of these is the uh, Buster Keaton film, Our Hospitality. Uh, this has been out before. This is, uh, but they, you know, there are, there's no copyright on these silence anymore. So it's all about the source materials. This is from the Lobster and Blackhawk uh, libraries. And uh, it's a, it is one of the all-time Keaton greats. Beautifully, beautifully restored. Um, 75 minutes long, 1923. Uh, really just, uh, you're, you're going to love it. Uh, Nor Natalie Talmadge, who was uh, Buster Keaton's wife at the time, is lovely in it. This includes an audio commentary with Farron Smith-Nemi and Imogen Sarah Smith. Uh, it also includes a, a short film, uh, A Duel to the Death, from 1947 that starred Buster Keaton, an, an aging Buster Keaton, but before he was on Twilight Zone. And uh, the short film, uh, The Iron Mule, as well as a presentation on the film by Serge Bromberg and uh, a documentary on the recording of the score by Robert Israel. So uh, Our Hospitality from Kino Classics and Lobster Films, absolutely superb. Don't miss it. Buster Keaton, one of the all-time greats. Um, from the exploitation end of things, Kino Classics goes a little bit far and wide. This is really interesting. This is uh, The Bloody Brood, which uh, is probably not known to a lot of people. Bloody Brood is from 1959. It is a Canadian 
exploitation film just on the cusp of when these kinds of things really explode in the 1960s. And uh, Julian Rothman, who is primarily known for doing a, a cult 3D movie in, in the 1960s, this was his very, very first film. And uh, it's it's really it's really it's very raw in that early beatniky way. Like Corman was experimenting with some yeah. of this, and yeah. and what you see in in uh, like a bucket of blood, uh, the trip, the trip. Yeah, all of those elements are are sort of woven into this. Except it's a Canadian film, and it happens to have a very very young uh, Peter Falk making his feature film debut. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. incredible. It's fantastic. Uh, but it's got drugs. It's got beatniks. It's got a murder in investigation uh the murder itself is really gruesome i won't give you the details on it but uh you know it's it's just really really well done it's beautifully shot by uh, eugene shuftan who would win an academy award a, a little bit later for the hustler mm -hmm. so really really great cinematography um it's just a cool film and there's a little featurette in here, a 60-minute featurette, that's all about how this kind of fits into the beatnik culture of the time. Audio commentary by Paul Karup of uh, Canucksploitation.com and film historian Jason Pachonsky. I had no idea that Canadian exploitation films had an actual name. Like yeah. Australian exploitation films are Ozploitation. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Japanese, we called them Japsploitation. Yeah, yeah. Blacksploitation, yeah, like we have that here. Canucksploitation? Never heard of it. It's a term, but it's the thing. You got maybe you got to be a Canuck. I guess, or at least but, Canadian. You know. Uh, anyway, the thing. Uh, so, and then there's also a uh, Julian Rothman short film on here from 1954 called Freedom to Read, which is very, very good. It's uh, you know you see his his filmmaking chops really emerging. So, The Bloody Brood, great Canadian exploitation film, 1959. Uh, let's see. As long as we're on exploitation and things that are sort of nominally exploitation, um, Roger Vadim, the one-time mm. husband of uh, Jane? Jane Fonda, among others, um, typically known for, for doing uh, sort of exploitation-like films, but on a certain level is also a real filmmaker, made some real movies. And one of them was Dangerous Liaisons, or in the French title, Les Liaisons Dangereuses. Mm. Uh, starring Jeanne Moreau, we just talked about yeah. earlier, and Gerard Philippe. And this is also from 1959. Um, one of the more interesting French films of the time because it's, it's like a contemporary adaptation of Dangerous Liaisons. Uh, it contemporizes it. It's basically the same story that we know, except it feels a little bit more lascivious in a modern context. Yeah. All the manipulation yeah. and, the, and the play. When you when you take the powdered wigs and all the renaissance -y kind of stuff away from it, it, it now it feels just sort it's of dirty. Kind of, kind of dirty. Um, yeah, I think about that, Valmont, yeah. and, you know, and um, uh, Dangerous Liaisons. Yeah. Know? Yeah. That one, I don't know. Uh, yeah, that one is just a little bit skeezier. But, but here's the other cool thing. The other cool thing is that the French were nuts about jazz at this point in time in the 1950s. More, more nuts about jazz than Americans. Yeah, yeah. And you have that, you, you know, we all know uh, Louis Malle's Elevator to the Scaffolds yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, has yeah. a great Miles Davis score. Well, Roger Vadim... Not to be outdone, said, well, I'm just going to go and get Thelonious Monk to do yeah. my score. And you know what? The one thing that prevents this from feeling just really dirty 
Is that Thelonious yeah, Monk Thelonious music? Monk. It, it makes it all so sophisticated. It does. Yeah, it yeah. does. It just puts a different veneer on it. It takes you away to that moment in France when you know you just kind of want to go to a little underground smoke-filled club and <laughs> just listen, listen to some brother from listen. Tennessee, <laughs> which is where they all oh, went. Okay. Yeah, you know, they New all Orleans. went to work. Yeah. Um, as long as we're on French films, Bertrand Blier. Wonderful filmmaker who I had the privilege of interviewing some years ago uh, did the wonderful, wonderful movie Buffet Froid, uh, which is otherwise known as Cold Cuts, made from made in 1979. This is an archival interview with Blier on it. This is a very, very dark comedy with a young Gerard Depardieu uh, in prime form, uh, uh, along with Bernard Blier, the director's father, and uh, Jean Carme. Uh, it is. It's it's really really a very macabre film. Uh, Depardieu is this guy who keeps who keeps um he has he just people keep dying and he keeps stumbling across the dead bodies mm. and it's really and and it and that winds up there's a thing with a knife I won't tell you exactly what happens but he he winds up getting sort of caught in a Hitchcockian spiral. Uh, just an ordinary guy and and the the question is you know what's what's going on. And um, Bernard Blier plays this uh, police inspector that lives next door to him and uh, who gets kind of drawn into this. And um, then you throw in uh, Jean Carme, and I'm not going to tell you what, he, what role he plays, but it winds up kind of going into this completely and totally bizarre direction. It is very representative of what French films were in the 1970s as they're trying to sort of outgrow the new wave and do something different. And you have people like Godard who, who went completely off the rails and mm. just started making these <laughs> non-linear, uh, non-narrative, no nonsense music. movies. And everybody else is trying to kind of do something new. Yeah. And this is one of those things. You know, Blier is not a, uh, is not a new waver. He's kind of a child of the new wave. Yeah, yeah. And uh, he's, he's looking to, to take French cinema in a new direction. And this is one of those great movies that did that. Uh, we also have uh, Jean Renoir's La Marseillaise, made in uh, 1938, which is uh, an interesting time because it's just shortly before World War II breaks out and mm-hmm. the Nazis invade France. But uh, it, nonetheless, this is a really, really wonderful, epic uh, telling of the uh, of the French Revolution. La Marseillaise is the name of the French uh, national anthem. And uh, this was funded by a public subscription service. Not sure if that's some kind of mm. Kickstarter early kick- yeah yeah something like that. But anyways, very very interesting way it was funded, and uh, it is a it's a very accomplished film. Very unusual for um, uh, for uh, Renoir. It's it's much more epic and and sort of less intimate than you would normally expect from him. But it is uh, it is nonetheless a superb film from his body of work. Um, and some good extras on here too. There's an archival interview with Jean Renoir and yeah. an audio commentary with uh, Nick Pinkerton, who's a, uh, a film critic, kind of like us. Yeah. Uh, and then, lastly, from the Kino Classics line is The Eagle, starring Rudolph Valentino, great movie star who made relatively few movies, but they're all famous. And this is one of them. This is a 2K restoration from the original uh, 35 millimeter elements. It has an audio commentary on it by Galen Studlar. And uh, an Alloy Orchestra score, a brand new score for it. It's pretty, pretty terrific. Uh, the movie was made in 1925. It is, uh, of course, a silent. And it takes place in uh, 18th century Russia. It's just a, you know, it's a, a straight-up epic romance, very kind of Dr. Zhivago-y. But um, the great thing about it is that you really do see precisely why Valentino was and remains a great star. There's just something about that face and that presence that is incomparable. Couldn't make the transition 
yeah. uh, after after sound um, one of the yeah. one of the many but boy what a what a really terrific movie this is the eagle by Rudolph Valentino fantastic restoration uh, a few Do new some movies. new stuff, yeah. Uh, there was, uh, which you know, some some of the stuff is actually pretty good, and I'm I'm glad we're getting a chance to talk about it here now at the beginning of awards season, so we can draw some attention to these things, including this little film called The Weekend, a film by Stella Meiji that stars Shair Zamata, who of course we know from Saturday Night Live. Yeah. Uh, where she was uh, very funny there, uh, among many other places. This was a neat little movie that I thoroughly enjoyed. Uh, It's about a young comedian, uh, 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 Shazir, and she's doing comedy, stand-up comedy, when the movie starts. And she's basically telling a story uh, about how she was with this guy for several years, and uh, and then they broke up, and then now he has this uh, new girlfriend, fiancé, and how he keeps trying to get her to be friends with his fiance, that they can, you know, they all they just maintain this friendship, and about how she hates it. <laughs> and then we begin this movie where we see the, the, this young comedian go on this road trip with who? Her boyfriend and his fiance. Nice. So she's telling these really neat stories about what's actually happening in her life. What's wicked is that on stage they're so funny. Uh, in real life, they're absolutely horrified as as they're happening. And it's, it's just a really really sassy movie. Turns into a bit of a love triangle. I thoroughly enjoyed it. Uh, Dewanda Wise in the film, uh, as well as Kim Whitley playing her mother in this wonderful little movie. Special features include a commentary w- with the writer-director and the lead actress in the film. Check that out if you get a chance. She's funny, Shasir. Uh, no matter where she is, she's just absolutely hysterical. I do not know why we needed an Angry Birds 2 movie. The first Angry Birds movie was unnecessary so far as I was I, concerned. You know what? I, I, I couldn't. The first one was so bad. <laughs> yeah. I don't. I just don't. And I like the game. Yeah, you know, and you, I, yeah, but, I was not about the But, game you know, I wasted too much time on that damn yeah. game. Yeah, there was, it, was, it was like – so anyway, we, we got ourselves an Angry Birds movie, Angry Birds 2 movie. This one has some neat special um, uh, features on it that you can check out. But look, you got to be into this if you're into this. I'm not particularly into this, uh, the, the sort of Angry Birds dynamic in this animation. But what the heck, Angry Birds 2, Blu-ray uh, 4K Ultra HD – um, Shia LaBeouf had a movie that came out a week or two ago called Honey Boy that was very interesting, a sort of uh, dramatic telling of his own life story as a young child actor being raised and taken care of by his father, a rodeo clown who was extremely abusive. And it kind of explained a whole lot about Shia LaBeouf, a uh, young actor who gets himself in a mm-hmm. lot of trouble with this. And he watched that movie, Honey Boy. Before the, that, though, earlier this year, he was in a, a, you know, a highly titled little, little movie called The Peanut Butter Falcon, which is a wonderful little movie. That, that got, yeah, you know, and I haven't watched that yet. It and got rave reviews, it got rave uh, reviews including al- from me. Al- al- from almost no marketing. With all, really almost nothing. Yeah. Um, one of the things about the film is that the young lead of the film uh, is, is, is a young fellow with Down syndrome. Uh, Jack Gottenstein is his name. And, and Zach is just wonderful in this movie. He, he plays this young man uh, who keeps running away from this home where he's staying and has this caretaker. And he runs off and he hooks up with, uh, uh, with uh, Shia LaBeouf's character. And they go on this sort of road trip, except that it's not a road trip. It's a river trip because they have a raft. And they sail down the Mississippi. This is what this movie is. It's Tom Sawyer and Huck Finn. Oh, no kidding. And, and, you're, and I'm watching this movie, and I'm like, wait a minute. <laughs> this is Tom Sawyer and Huck Foom. This is why it's clever, though. Shy is playing Huck, and the kid with Down Syndrome 
is playing Tom. Uh, He's the rational one <laughs> who actually knows what the hell is oh, going that's on. Great. While Shia, who effectively yeah, is, 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 that's great. Is, is, and it's really just the sweetest movie about them going on this trek to find this wrestler yeah, that the guy. Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, I'm hoping that people, Dakota Johnson, John Hawks, also in the film. I'm hoping that people sort of pick back up on this and talk about it. I'm going to be adding it to a little list that you and I are working on. Uh, for a whole bunch of film sure, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. For the Peanut Butter Falcon. A oh, few special features. Uh, Zach's story, the making of the movie, and which is really, really interesting because it gets behind a little bit and tells you a little bit about who that young man is, yeah. who is a wonderful actor. And this is how I know he's a wonderful actor because a lot of times we sort of confabulate these things with, you know, oh, yeah. maybe they're just... Uh, no, he's a wonderful actor. I'll tell you why. He has timing. He has comedic uh, timing. This kid makes faces, and he 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 would be so. Gotta watch it. You gotta watch the movie. You gotta watch thir- it. You for, especially for for award season, right? Yes, you think exactly. he's gonna get some love? I think that, and I think that that kid in particular ought to get himself a best actor nomination. Want to knock off a few of those? Yeah. So, uh, Kino Studio Classics. So, in the Kino Studio Classics line, they just cut a deal with a studio uh, that clearly uh, wants to get rid of a couple of brands. Mm-hmm. Now we're talking about Disney. Disney, when, why would Disney want to shed any brands? Disney's all about brands. Yeah. Well, Disney is all about Pixar, Lucasfilm, uh, Marvel, and Disney. Mm-hmm. The two brands that they kind of want to get rid of are the ones left over from the Eisner-Katzenberg era, which were the more serious movies, notably Touchstone and Hollywood Pictures. Hollywood Pictures, yeah. Yeah. So Touchstone was about real movies, uh, you know, things like Dead Poets Society. Yeah. And still, Hollywood, still sort of family-oriented, aren't yeah. you? Hollywood Pictures went a little closer to the R. Yeah, yeah. Hollywood Pictures was a little bit crazier. It yeah. wanted to, they wanted to be, uh, yeah, a little closer to the R. So we got one, so we got a bunch of touchstones, uh, six touchstones and one Hollywood Pictures title here that have been licensed to Kino. The Hollywood Pictures one, uh, Tim, tell me if you remember this one. Gone fishing. <laughs> Did the junket for that movie. Joe Pesci kind of at the end, right right before he goes on that long hiatus. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that, that Joe Pesci. Yeah, what, Gone go- fishing with Joe Pesci and Danny Glover. <laughs> yeah, that is the weirdest buddy movie. Basically, <laughs> basically uh, everybody from the later uh, Lethal Weapon Lethal movies, movie, minus yeah. Mel Gibson. Mel, yeah, yeah. So in any case, this is uh, you know what they play fishermen. It's a buddy movie with fishermen and things all go wrong and uh, you know. It's basically kind of like a Jerry Lewis yeah, movie yeah. or a, a Dean Martin, maybe an Abbott and Costello movie. I mean, it's not very funny. Chris Kane, uh, Dean Kane's dad, who did Young Guns, directed it. He's, yeah. It's fine. Uh, Roger Birnbaum, you know, did it. Written by Jill Mazursky uh, and uh, and and uh, well, let me let me let me let me fill people in. Jill Mazursky is Paul Mazursky's daughter. Yes. She co-wrote this with somebody who here goes by the uh, name Jeffrey Abrams. <laughs> now, I just want to let everybody else know, uh, the, the movie Taking Care of Business with, uh, with uh, uh, Charles Grodin mm-hmm. um, was the breakthrough script for these two, mm-hmm. Jill Mazursky and Jeffrey Abrams. You might know Jeffrey Abrams as J.J. Abrams. Yeah, yeah. But if you don't know that, you're just going to look at this and go, oh, Jeffrey Abrams. And you look back. Yeah, J.J. co-wrote uh, Gone Fishing. It's not something that's going to show up on a lot of bios. Yeah. It was when he was uh, applying his trade. It's a lot of shtick, mostly. Yeah. The the So here are the Touchstone movies. And there's some really good stuff in here. Uh, the first one is Billy Bathgate. 
Um, hmm, junket the... for that. I'm gonna have done the junket for all of these. That's just now. Billy Bathgate was a little bit noteworthy at the time. It kind of came in the wake of Bugsy and the mm-hmm. movie Mobsters, and it was the same group of characters that were showing up in all these movies at various points in their lives. Some focused on one, some focused on the other. Uh, Meyer Lansky and 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 Bugsy Siegel, and you know all these. Characters. There was a moment in the early '90s. What that, is that? Ninety ninety? Yeah, ninety one. Ninety one. Yeah. And and they're they're all show you know uh, Dutch Schultz who also showed up in the Cotton Club. Yeah. I mean all these characters from that particular point in time are are showing up in all these movies. Everybody was kind of obsessed with exploring that particular milieu of gangsters. Uh, Cotton Club was the first one to do it, and then all the rest of these show up. Uh, so um, uh, Dustin Hoffman plays Dutch Schultz here, yeah. much less intimidating Dutch Schultz than James Remar in the Cotton Club, who's a complete psychopath. Yeah, um, but uh, he's still good. Bill Duke did one back then. Oh, yeah, Bill oh, Duke uh, Hoodlum. did do one. Hoodlums. And, That's right. And Tim Roth played Dutch Schultz there in that you go. movie. Yeah. There were a ton of them. They, yeah, I mean, yeah, they, yeah like, they were all over the place. All over the place. And then the, you know, in, in, in Mobsters, which is the one where they're all oh, young. Oh, yeah. Well, they're all, yeah. With young, Christian with, Slater. Patrick, Patrick, uh, yeah. what's his name? Yeah, Simpson, yeah. Or whatever. Yeah. Uh, so anyway, the the thing now this is not a great movie. It's got a lot of issues, but a lot of great people are involved in it. And Nicole Kidman, for those who care, does have a nude moment. I won't call it a nude scene. It's a nude I, moment. I care. Yeah. Uh, which which a lot of people consider one of her career highs uh, for all kinds of strange Young reasons. Nicole Kidman did fantastic naked. Nobody's taking that away from there me. There you go. Uh, but what a great cast. Nicole Kidman. Uh, Lauren Dean plays the title character of Billy Bathgate, by the way, who's... Uh, young a, Lauren Dean. Unknown Lauren at the Dean. time, relatively speaking. Yeah. he's. I mean, it's all... You know, he's a young guy who's working for Dutch Schultz. Yeah. That's basically it, which is sort of what Richard Gere did in the Cotton Club, too. But but he's uh, it's all through the eyes of this young kid as he's flirting with mobsters and whatnot. Uh, directed by Robert Benton, one of his last films, the director of Kramer vs. Kramer, mm. written by Tom Stoppard, you know, the great Tom Stoppard, mm. Brazil and Empire of the Sun and many fine plays. Uh, based on the E.L. Doctorow book, E.L. Doctorow, who wrote Ragtime, Nestor Almendros, who, you know, legendarily won an Oscar for, uh, for shooting uh, 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 Terrence Malick's Days of Heaven. Um, you know, so I mean, a lot of amazing people are involved in this. Mark Isham wrote the music. Bruce Willis shows up in this thing. I mean, it's a it's a very impressive collection of people. It's just not a very good movie. Yeah, yeah. it just doesn't all hang together. It tanked it, at the it, time. It tanked. it tanked at the time. Yeah. Uh, Steve Martin, a Simple Twist of Fate, which he wrote, which is an absolutely charming film. Yeah, it uh, also tanked he, at the time. It's a story, yeah. story of a single dad. Uh, it's very, very serious. People expect it to be funny. It's actually quite reflective and directed by Gillies McKinnon, the great Scottish director who hasn't done enough since. Um, but yeah, this is a passion project for Steve Martin, all about parenting and, and human relationships. And uh, it's a more serious film than what uh, you know you normally get from him. Gabriel Byrne also very, very good in that. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, we've also got Life with Mikey with Michael J. Fox, yeah, co-starring yeah. Nathan Lane, Cindy Lauper. Sort of, sort of the post um, yeah. uh, Back to the Future Michael J. Fox, who's a little bit more grown up. Yeah. Uh, but still, yeah, close to one of his last big sort of like A pictures. You got to really love Michael J. Fox yeah. to love this movie. Well, I, I, I dug the premise of that movie. He was an agent who, who had used, once was a child actor. Yeah. And of course, Michael J. had been a child actor. And now he's sort of like this failing agent of child yeah. actors. Yeah. And there's a little girl in that movie who, who cracked me up. This she's a vicious little girl. She's fine. I just don't. I don't get this movie. You, you uh, never did care for that one. Uh, James Lapine, the uh, great stage director, uh, directed it. Uh, Scott Rudin co-produced. Uh, yeah, just not my favorite movie. Uh, here's an odd, odd tidbit about it. Alan Menken did the score. Oh. Like when was the last time Alan Menken did the score for yeah. a non-animated film? Yeah. 
Um, saving the the uh, the uh, best two for last, and then I'm going to make mention here of Newport South, which is a really unusual touchstone film, one of the very last from 2001. Um, this was produced by uh, John Hughes, or executive produced by John Hughes, um, and written by James Hughes, his son. That's why. Um, not a John Hughes film, but it's uh, it's got some interesting performances in it from some up-and-coming actors, notably Todd Field, who, of course, would uh, would go on to, to be quite a great director of things like In the Bedroom. And, um, uh, you know, directed by Kyle Cooper, uh, it's it's just a it's like a, a high school thriller, you know, and uh, it's one of those sort of it's like a like like prep school as horror movie movies, except not in a prep school. This is just a, a, a suburban Chicago high school, but um, it's just uh, I don't know. It tries to say too much about society, and it tries to use the school a little bit too much as a as a metaphor for the the greater world. It's very ambitious, but mm. it's an unusual movie. Kind of vanished, and uh, Touchstone vanished with it. It's Newport South. I did not do the junket for that. I don't think there was one. Here are the two great Touchstone films that I'm going to uh. recommend this week: uh, New York Stories, which is a wonderful film with uh, basically an anthology by Woody Allen, Francis Coppola, and Martin Scorsese. Uh, absolutely delightful. Uh, Life with Z- without Zoe is the Francis Coppola film, which was the first big film thing that Sofia Coppola did. She co-wrote it with her dad, and uh, Vittorio Stororos shot it. Nestor Almendros, previously noted, uh, shot the Martin Scorsese uh, short, which was written by Richard Price. And uh, the one that most people seem to like the most is Oedipus Rex, our W like Rex, like you wreck a car which uh, is Woody Allen's, and it's a totally weird, unusual Woody Allen fantasy story that almost uh, goes up there with Zelig, and that one is shot by Sven Nyqvist. So worth noting is not only are these three shorts by three particularly great filmmakers, they're also three great efforts by amazing cinematographers. The uh, Scorsese one with Nick Nolte playing the mad artist is uh, is also a, a favorite of a lot of people, but uh, I think the whole thing is still terrific. 1989, New York Stories, really, really a very underrated film. And then lastly, as long as we're on the Scorsese subject, is Martin Scorsese's Kundun from 1997. Came out roughly right after uh, the, uh, the the horrible, horrible Brad Pitt. What was the Brad Pitt uh, thing? Oh, seven years in, in Tibet. Tibet. That was it. Yeah, about yeah. Thor. What's his name or whatever? Yeah, the, uh, which, Heardall or whatever. whatever. Yeah, not it wasn't Thor, but, but the Thor, other, but the other yeah, guy. the Austrian yeah. explorer. Yeah. Um, anyway, which was nominally about the Dalai Lama through his friendship with this Austrian explorer at the time. Um, Scorsese just said, "I'm just going to go with a straight biopic." It's actually a very, very good film. Uh, it, it gets ripped on a lot. Melissa Matheson, who, of course, wrote E.T., did the screenplay. Roger Deakins shot it. It is a gorgeous-looking film. It has a lot going for it. It's a it's an unusual Scorsese film, but it is really, really good. And I'm, I am I would love to have a more elaborate version of it, but this, uh, you know, this is close as close to a special edition as you're going to get. Audio commentary by Peter Tonguet. Uh, there's an interview with Martin Scorsese, interview with Philip Glass, who wrote the score, interview with Melissa Matheson, and then a bunch of documentaries and featurettes. And the documentary itself, In Search of Kundun, which is feature length, is amazing. Um, there's also an interview with uh, in the director of the documentary. So you get a featurette on, uh, you, you get a, a, an extra that's an extra for, the, for an extra. Amazing. 
Uh, another feature-length documentary, Compassion in Exile, EPKs. I mean, they just they just threw everything at this, and it's worth it. It's a really, really good film. It's it's very, very underrated. It gets ripped on a lot, but I I, I think it's uh, it's worth reevaluating. Kundun, the amazing story of the 14th Dalai Lama. Uh, a few more newbies. Yeah. Uh, if we would, this 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 was it was unfortunate uh, that this movie happened to come out uh, this year, or maybe in the, even the last four or five years in the context of sort of like Me Too movement. But you know, there it is, and this is when they made it. And what the hell are you going to do? Brian Banks, based on the uh, true story of Brian yeah. Banks. Brian Banks was a young high school football player. He was accused of rape uh, by a young woman, and he uh, and ultimately convicted of that rape and sent to prison. Yeah. It's been several years in prison. Lost his entire professional career. It, it's just, you know, and uh, yeah. uh, ultimately the young wo- woman confesses in a phone call to Brian Banks after yeah. after he leaves prison. She confesses that you know that didn't happen. And never seemed to realize the gravity of what she did. No, no, and and this is it's so a, a terrible, terrible circumstance. This is about all of that and yeah. how it it is all eventually exposed and expunged. She did have a very short uh, professional career, but obviously deeply truncated yeah. by the you know, X number of years, maybe a decade yeah. that he spent in prison. You know, from seventeen yeah. to twenty-seven. Such a horrible story. Um, so, so, so that's what this is all about. This movie happens to come out within the context of the Me Too move- movement. Uh, and uh, that's unfortunate. It, it, it doesn't mean that this isn't a very powerful and dramatic story that people ought to see uh, and, uh, and judge on its own merits, the truth of its own merits. Um, uh, you, look, they make a couple of mistakes in this movie, um, but one of them was not casting Aldrich Haas, who's so good in this movie. Unbelievably good. Uh, and really I, and, good. And, and probably carries the whole movie. A, carries the whole movie. Yeah. And probably a name that we ought to keep in mind as we're thinking about some of yeah. these awards. Yeah. We shouldn't, we, we shouldn't um, uh, ignore that performance. We shouldn't let the studios yeah. tell us. Because, oh, you know, yeah, yeah, oh, I agree. Oops, sorry. You know, one of those yeah. things. Um, good boys, this is so stupid, funny. This dumb movie. I hate it when these knuckleheads get me. You know, because you know Seth yeah. and you know, all, these, yeah. the, all the all the guys from Superbad uh, and Sausage Party and, and and those movies. They they you know they get together and they produce these goofy movies all the time. This one's about these kids in the sixth grade. And in some ways, Judd Apatow and all these guys, they've been making the same movie because Superbad is really just that sitcom that they had yeah. on in the what, maybe late eighties, yeah. early nineties. Yeah, uh, that was on for a couple. Of, I forget what it was called that sitcom. Uh, and then you, it's like the same thing. And then you take it and you apply it to forty-year-old men. You get the forty-year-old virgin. You know, it's like the same thing. It's about some goofy boys slash men mm-hmm. of some age and some dumb adventure that they go on uh, and learn to be a little bit more grown up. Usually guided by some women and/or girls. In the case of this movie, girls, uh, uh, they learn to be a little bit more grown up. And, and yeah. I swear to God, this is the exact same movie. It's just sixth graders yeah. <laughs> instead of it being forty-year-old men. Yeah. It's sixth graders. At least the sixth graders are supposed to be done this is r-rated crude sexual content drug and alcohol material language throughout involving tweens that's literally what it says in terms of i didn't even know they could use the word tweens Mm -hmm. in the rating but there it is and it's absolutely true this is an obnoxious disgusting little movie it is so damn funny and i don't know if i was this boneheaded when i was in the sixth grade as these kids, I don't think so. Mm-hmm. But then again, if I were, I probably wouldn't admit it. Lots of great special features on here, too, including an alternate, deleted scenes and an alternate ending. Uh, as if this dumbass movie needed a, a different ending. But you know what? It's even more stupid, the alternate ending. So there you go. Love that movie, actually. A lot of fun. Um, the Farewell, which... I first heard this on NPR. I, I love forget, this I movie. forget which, which, the but it was tell the story. Yeah, uh, you, 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 they have this. Uh, uh, the grandmother, she's dying, 
And the whole family wants to go back and celebrate, this, but they don't want to tell the grandmother yeah. that she's dying. They don't tell her that she's yeah. dying. And it's all about how they have to engage in this sort of series of uh, deceptions and, 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 and emotional upheaval and, 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 and things that have to be said but can't be said because, you know, we can't it's, actually say why we're actually here. It, this is going to get a lot of love in award season. Everybody was we, – people have been talking about Aquafina all year long. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, also, the fact that you know, here we are. We, we've moved out of uh, Crazy Rich Asians to a place where now we have these movies that are with all Asian casts, and yep. people are finally just the okay Chinese with family. It. Yep. It, it, and but uh, it's not about them being it's Chinese. Not, they it's just family. Are. It's, it's a family. Drama based on a loosely true, st- and it's just the sweetest. It is based on the on the uh, on the director's uh, her actual own, her own thing. actual grandmother and family experience. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And I can't remember what NPR show cared. It might have been This American Life. Yeah. Kind of feels like a This American Lifer. Yeah, uh, kind of story there. All kinds of special features, audio commentary, and uh, behind the scenes and deleted scenes, yeah. and it's just a, a lot sweet, of love. A lot of love for that movie. movie. Sweetest damn movie. So we got three here also from the Kino Studio Classics line that are uh, three Don Siegel movies from different decades. Don Siegel, of course, most famous probably for directing Dirty Harry and for kind of being a mentor to Clint Eastwood. Yeah. Uh, you know, he, uh, he directed Clint in a number of films, and Eastwood learned a lot of his directing chops from Don Siegel. Mm-hmm. Don Siegel was always a, uh, a, a hard ass, you know. He was, uh, this is a guy who in the 1950s just was always pushing the envelope. He always wanted to go deeper, darker, dirtier, tougher than everybody else wanted to go. Um, and not in like a like a Samuel Fuller way. Not in like I'm a I'm a crazy man and I'm gonna bite your head off yeah. in a way. He he was just he was a, he was a very gentle but tough guy and uh, really very in control. Super professional filmmaker. And from 1958, we have The Gunrunners, starring uh, legendary war hero Audie Murphy. Eddie Albert and uh, Patricia Owens, and uh, this is basically about uh, gun smugglers during the Cuban Revolution. That's it, mm-hmm. and it's fun, and it's tough, and it's rugged, and uh, it's got a lot of uh, it's got a lot of uh, really tense moments in it. It's based on an Ernest Hemingway novel, To Have and Have Not, which I have not read, so I can't speak to how faithful it is. But uh, it's a fun movie. A decade later, he made Madigan. Which is another great tough guy movie. Madigan stars uh, Richard Widmark, another legendary tough guy. Henry Fonda, uh, Harry Gardino, James Whitmore. Uh, you know, these are all just—they're all playing super tough. You get some women in here: Inger Stevens, Susan Clark. They—they—they, they, but they're kind of window dressing. This is all about the tough guys, and it's—it's um, uh, it's a detective film. That's all it is. It's just about New York City cops. And uh, it's a really gritty way. You know, this is kind of one of the stylistic changes in the 1960s. This comes on the heels of In the Heat of the Night. And it's still, it's just before the French Connection. So it's doing it's doing a little bit of those things. And it's got a great script by once a blacklisted screenwriter, Abraham Polanski. Really worth checking out. Uh, I, I, I just think this movie is just so much fun. It's a great cast, and it's just beautifully directed. And then lastly, from the 1970s, from 1973 is the Don Siegel film, and this feels a lot more like in the vein of Dirty Harry. Uh, this is Charlie Varick, V-A-R-R-I-C-K. Charlie is spelled C-H-A-R-L-E-Y. And this has Walter Matthau, the least likely tough guy, playing tough. Uh, Joe Don Baker, we're accustomed to him being tough, but uh, and he co-stars. But really, this is all about Walter Matthau. Who even gets uh, he gets the Lalo Schifrin score treatment? Yeah, uh, which is all about 1970s. 
Um, yeah, this is just a superb, tough film. I'm surprised this is actually still rated PG. I think if they re-rated this, this would be an R. I yeah. gotta be honest. I yeah. think in 1973 this was PG, but today with as skittish as everybody is, yeah. this would at least get a PG-13. Uh, and uh, you even get Andy Robinson showing up in this, uh, who Siegel also used in Dirty Harry, uh, most famously as uh, as uh, Scorpio. So uh, Norman Fell. I mean, it's a great. Yeah. It's it's, it's yeah. fun watching all the all the uh, all the faces kind of uh, pass around here. And the story is basically a mano a mano between uh, Charlie Varick and uh, Joe Don Baker's mafia hitman. Charlie's a crook. He's a he's a very shrewd career crook, and uh, they've sent a hitman after him. There you go. That's it. Three by Don Siegel. Sweet, sweet, sweet. A couple more of these? Yeah. Let's see. Uh, safe. And the, and the, the, the way they structured the title of this was meant to be a television series. It ended up being a movie. It's S-A-F-3. So that's okay. what it looks like. When you look gotcha. But you just call it safe when you see it. Yeah. And this is actually pretty good, particularly you know here in Southern California where we've been living. This is set yeah. in Malibu uh, amongst the sort of Great. fire rescue team. Uh, <laughs> oh, these dear. guys, Dolph Lundgren, uh, J.J. Uh, uh, Mar- Martinez, uh, and all these guys are this this fire rescue team, smoke smoke jumping kind of guys who are uh, leaping into the fire and pulling people out. And you know what? Uh, given what we've been experiencing, even yeah. even up until this weekend, this this very weekend, right there, yeah. the Barm Fire, right where I used to live there. I got some respect for these guys. Oh, they, they did an amazing job last couple of weeks. Yeah, and this yeah. is this, you know this is a big hero movie with you know gritty guys with square jaws and a couple of gals with square jaws who uh, who have to get the job done. Uh, but understand that maybe sometimes one of them might not come home. Uh, and you know from there you can probably figure out what the rest of the, the television series slash movie is about. Pretty good. No special features to speak of. Uh, got a movie called Bliss, which is about this young artist. Uh, who's getting all this sort of critical acclaim. Everyone wants to know about what her next project is going to be, and, and she just all this pressure, and she is working on a thing that she believes will be her masterpiece, mm. but she gets stuck, blocked, starts doing all kinds of crazy things to break that block, drugs, wacky sex, all this kind of stuff, spirals uh, into uh, you know, just a, a turmoil. Uh, but it does, in fact, it does, in fact, inform her art. It's a neat movie that speaks to that sort of idea of you know where art comes from. I don't like the idea that we always have to associate great art with some sort of turmoil and uh, drugs mm. and alcohol and all that. I think that's crap. Yeah. You know, you know, yeah. Best painter I ever knew was that guy who used to paint on PBS, uh, mm. uh, Ross. I think Gary yeah. Ross. I think it was his name. Yeah. Coolest comics guy with the fro. Remember the guy yeah, with the fro? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, he might have been a little high, but I don't think so. <laughs> I don't think so. I think he was probably straight and just painting, man. Just painting. Pretenders, a James Franco film. If you look up James Franco's, he just makes uh, he, he just, I can't you know, keep up. I can't keep um, up. And, you, and, 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 you know, for, for, for a while there, I sort of appreciated the way he would lend his name to other folks' projects. Yeah. Because, okay? you know, if you get James Franco yeah. in your movie, you're probably going to get your movie made. And they'd make these $35 movies. James would walk through them, do this, that, or the other thing. Be pretty good, but it would really be about those filmmakers. Uh, this is one that's uh, that's directed by James Franco, and he, you know, and he and he drags a whole bunch of his fancy friends into it: Brian Cox, Dennis Quaid, uh, in the movie; Juno Temple in the movie; uh, Jack Kilmer, who is Val Kilmer's son, in the movie. So you know, this 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 is a movie that's trying to be a little bit 
bigger than the usual sort of, you know, James Franco tributary films that he can uh, that he makes. It's it's not any better though, not really. Anyway, uh, it, it's 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 about these this 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 filmmaker and this director and this actress, and then they get involved with this beautiful actress played by Juno Temple, kind of doing that thing that Juno always does in movies where she's just just completely alluring temptress, which is a good role for her to play because she yeah. kind of is an alluring I'd temptress. I'd like to see her do something different. Yeah, but yeah, yeah, that works. yeah, that would be that would be interesting, and they, and it's about you know how how ye, how for years they sort of spin around each other and things eventually slide out of control. Bonus feature, nothing but the theatrical trailer on that one, man. You got a few more over there? Yeah, let me uh, let me jump on to uh, some stuff from the 70s, and including a couple of AIP Sam Arkoff classics. Ooh. Uh, starting with those street people with Roger, Roger Moore and Stacey Keach. Uh, and this has one of those taglines I always love to read. The hunting season has opened in the naked city. <laughs> What does that even mean? I don't <gasps> I even know don't what that know. means. Uh, so Street People is one of those movies that Roger Moore made to try to prove that he could do something other than James Bond, yeah. only to prove that he really no. couldn't. And that when he tried, he just wound up being either James Bond or Simon Templar and everything. He kind of only had that one gear. I mean, he played James Bond as Simon Templar, yeah. frankly. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, uh, it's, it's why he got the job because he was you're, he was basically playing Bond on television. Yeah, it's crazy. Anyway, this was a Sam Markoff production, which meant that it didn't have a lot of money behind it. Uh, co-written by Randall Kleiser of uh, of Grease and uh, Blue Lagoon fame, um, along with Ernest Tidyman, who we know from a lot of black exploitation classics, mm-hmm. and uh, directed by Maurice Lucidi. Whom yeah. I've never heard of. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I have no idea who he is. It's one of those I, Italian sort of mashup movies. It's, it's almost like a spaghetti western, only <laughs> it's just, only with gangsters. That's it. Anyway, it's a, it's a whole mafia deal gone wrong and a heroin thing, and they gotta they gotta somehow go from Sicily to San Francisco and other locations where I'm sure Sam had some cheap locations. Um, Sam, I'm so glad I got to meet him several times. Yeah, you know, once you get past Stacy Keach in the in the in the credits, you got yeah. Roger Moore, Stacy Keach. Every name after that is Italian. <laughs> it's crazy. Every name after that is Italian. Return to Macon County from 1975. This feels like too late for this film. Feels like it should have been 1965. Uh, in any case. Uh, Return to Macon County is noteworthy only because it has a very young Nick Nolte and a shockingly young Don Johnson in yeah. it. And uh, this tells you pretty much exactly what's going on. This is a moment when it's all about uh, Dirty Larry, Crazy Mary, yeah. and Badlands, if you want a slightly more... Uh, yeah. Look, they're all the, the, the children of uh, Bonnie and Clyde. Yeah. And this has a tagline that tells you exactly what the movie's about. They gave a lot of thought into this. Two guys, a chick, and the hottest 57 Chevy on the road. <laughs> there it is. That's what it is. Throw in some guns, and uh, you're, you're on your way. Um, anyway, this was basically a sequel to Macon County Line, which is a much better movie. Um, but it's okay. It's, it's fine. It kind of pushes some of the same buttons in a less disciplined way, and uh, that's all you got to know. So, you know, they're, they're going to go compete in... These drag races, and uh, they pick up a waitress played by Robin Matson, and uh, you know, next thing you know, they, 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 things have they're now in trouble with the law and all the rest of it. So, yeah. but fortunately, they have a fast car. Uh, let's see, I got a couple over here. Uh, this film cracks me up a little bit. It's called The Art of Deception. Richard mm-hmm. Ryan, nobody ever heard of it. 
and the the conceit of this film is that the criminal organization has developed this virus that will allow it to gain control of the minds oh dear. of everyone on the planet. The whole damn planet. Not the city, not a country, not mind control. We want to now this is like a conceit from like an almost like a yeah. cartoon. I mean you mind control. This guy, the hero of the movie, a secret agent, must decide rather to save everyone on the planet or his wife who has been kidnapped. <laughs> so it's like that's his big choice. I could save Everybody on the planet, all seven and a half billion uh, people on the planet, by the way, which would include his wife, or just his wife. That's the stakes that they set up in this movie. That's ballsy. (laughs) Those are some ballsy stakes that you set up in a movie that cost a buck 95 with nobody in it, uh, with a black Carvette on the cover of it. Nevertheless, (laughs) nevertheless, there it is. Uh, this big ass movie, lots of special features, in, in, and uh, including the the red carpet and the making of and the promotional trailer and all kinds of neat stuff. So these guys are gutsy. I will give them that. Uh, got so are you? Uh, I, I got a couple more. Uh, you know what? Let me let me throw the rest of these seventies ones okay. out there. So um, more from the seventies, Nightmare in Badham County by John Llewellyn Moxie. A uh, big cast in this one: uh, Deborah Raffin and Chuck Connors. Oh, I and love Tina, Deborah Raffin. Tina, Tina Louise and Lana Wood, uh, sister of Natalie Wood. Ralph Bellamy. I mean, it's a, it's a good kind of B-ish cast for for 1976. And remember, the everything changes in the following year. Star Wars comes out, and the, yeah. whole, the whole business flips on its head. But um, they did a new 2K master of this. It has a really, really good look to it. does a really good job of uh, highlighting Frank Stanley's cinematography. Uh, John Llewellyn Mox, a good, strong director of the day. Got another, there's sheriffs in all of these things. This is about these, um, these girls, played by Deborah Raffin and uh, Lynn Moody, who uh, are just, uh, they, they just run afoul of this horrible, horrible sheriff in this small town, played by Chuck Connors. Who accuses them of uh, being prostitutes, and they wind up uh, going to this women's prison, and uh, that's where you know they have to somehow cope with this horrible, horrible injustice that's been inflicted on them because they made the mistake of driving through Badham County. Yeah, uh, there's a lot of metaphor in this as well. It is a it is an exploitation film nominally, but it's it's got a lot of uh, really really relevant stuff in it. Also got a couple of Jeff Bridges performances, young Jeff Bridges in two very interesting films. Winter Kills, uh, directed by William Reichert uh, back in 1979, is, a, is still a, uh, quite an interesting movie, um, especially you know, if you're a Jeff Bridges fan. He plays, the, um, he plays the son of a tycoon here played by John Huston and um, half-brother of uh, a U.S. president. Uh, and there's a... There's an assassination story. There's a thing that vaguely re- is based on the Kennedy assassination. Um, there's a whole kind of a Cuban angle to this. It's it's quite elaborate and far-reaching, and uh, it does a pretty decent job of elaborating on the novel, mm. the novel by uh, Richard Condon, who, who wrote The Manchurian Candidate. Um, uh, but it's a little bit hard to sort of wrap yourself around. It's a very, very far-reaching movie. Um, but the reason you, you really want to watch this, it was shot by Vilmos Zygmunt, who had just recently won uh, an Academy Award for shooting uh, Close Encounters. And uh, it has a great score by Maurice Jarre. 
And it uh, has some really interesting extras on it, including a uh, William Reichert and uh, Jeff Bridges reunion talking about the film and why it's relevant. And yeah. that's very, very interesting. Oh, dude, uh, Anthony Perkins, Eli Wallach, I know. Uh, Toshiro Mifune. It's a, it's a, it's a, again, it's a sprawling, very far-reaching movie. It's really attempting to make a novel in, yeah. in, you know, to sort of wrap itself around all these ideas. Uh, not quite so ambitious, but very fun. The uh, the late Michael Cimino wrote and directed uh, Thunderbolt and Lightfoot with Clint Eastwood and Jeff Bridges and uh, and George Kennedy, too. George Kennedy's a, a lot of fun in this. But ultimately, you know what? I, I love the beginning of this movie with Clint Eastwood as the as the as a preacher. And then next thing you know, he's ripping off his collar and he's getting out on the lamb with the guns <laughs> and teaming up with uh Jeff Bridges and they got big guns and they're gonna rob things and mm-hmm. it's just it's it's a great like cool crime guy movie yeah um they don't make these anymore movies no. that sort of celebrate the you can't you kind of can't make these anymore nah you can't because they kind of celebrate the criminal but boy it's a lot of fun this movie used to show all the time on television yeah. on, on on ABC and uh, it's it's really fun rediscovering it 1974's Thunderbolt and Lightfoot. Written and directed by Michael Cimino with uh, Clint Eastwood, Jeff Bridges, and George Kennedy. Lots of fun. I really highly recommend it. Mm. Movie stuff. Let's wrap those up. Uh, a couple of these. Uh, let's see. I got a movie here called Bare Knuckle Brawler, which is kind of a, a, a neat film just in terms of what it's about. Uh, Danny Trejo stars uh, uh, pops up in this movie. It's about this guy who uh, whose brother is a cop, goes into the underground fighting world. Uh, and uh, trying to trying to uncover some criminality that's going on there. His brother is killed. Uh, he comes home and he goes into the underground fighting world to try to figure out who killed his brother. Of course, uh, and, uh, and and figures out that you know in this world of uh, no holes barred, bare knuckled fighting, uh, you know the only thing you could do is try to stay alive. Uh, it's it's actually a pretty 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 brutal movie. It lives inside this world. These movies used to come out all the time in the in the middle '90s uh, when the Ultimate Fighting World sort of first popped up, and and all of those. Ultimate fighting guys would would show up in these movies. Oh yeah, you know, all launch, constantly launch two or three careers. Yeah, uh, more than that. Yeah, like yeah, a dozen. yeah, yeah, yeah. Like in, in in this genre, anyway. Actually, pretty cool. Uh, the uh, bonus features include a couple of deleted scenes. Forty seven meters down, uh, a sequel to the the the, the forty seven meters movie. Um, uh, in this particular case, you have these uh, young women are going to go diving on this sort of deep sea ruin. Uh, they go down there and they realize that they are, they're in this like crazy shark uh, breeding uh, the feeding ground, uh, and, and, the, and they have to all start to figure out how to hide inside these little crevices and corners and figure out how they're going to get themselves back to the boat before their oxygen runs out. Uh, and you know, basically, you gotta you gotta you know a, a lot of cute uh, gals getting eaten by sharks. I don't know why folks like that kind of thing, uh, but they but they certainly do. Special features uh, include a audio commentary with the writer director Joanna Johannes Roberts and a uh, little featurette all about the making of the film and and why those sharks look so real. Super cool. I uh, got some stuff from Arrow, Arrow Academy, and uh, the Arrow, uh, regular Arrow video releasing line. Arrow Academy, always the higher-end stuff, and in this case, they got a great one. Uh, 1954 is The Far Country, one of Anthony Mann's great westerns with James Stewart and uh, Ruth Roman. Um, so here's the deal. Um, uh, Jimmy Stewart and Walter Brennan are a couple of guys during the Klondike Gold Rush and the beautiful cinematography in Canada. They went to Canada and shot this. 
Um, and they are driving uh, cattle from Wyoming uh, to, you know, kind of get up there and get them in, get them doggies into, into Canada. And they wind up running afoul with a judge uh, and uh, all of his evil people. And uh, naturally, Jimmy Stewart has to have a little thing with uh, Saloon Keeper played by uh, Ruth Roman. And, uh, you know, they wind up having a shooting war and it's just a great Western. It is a cool movie. It's a very simple narrative, but it's a cool movie. Uh, written by Borden Chase and um, released at the time by Universal. Pretty great. A lot of great stuff on here. It's a two-disc set, limited edition, uh, and tons of extras here, including uh, two different presentations of the film in different aspect ratios because it was released in a roadshow edition at 2 to 1, but also at one eight five. so you can watch it either way. They also have a... Uh, a, a, a um, uh, a documentary uh, on Anthony Mann and his entire Western career at Universal and everything else that he did, which is very, very interesting and very, very comprehensive. And a uh, a, a thing called Man of the West, which is a, um, a film critic, Kim Newman, sort of reevaluating the uh, the films of, uh, of uh, Anthony Mann. And, of course, a very, very good audio commentary by Adrian Martin. So uh, there's that. And then the regular Arrow stuff, uh, a little bit, uh, a little bit kind of, kitschier and sleazier they're probably not so not sleazy it's you know not not to be mean or anything but uh we're gonna start off with uh, donald sutherland chad lowe and mia sarah in apprentice to murder which is um perfectly fine uh mia sarah whatever happened to mia sarah she just kind of vanished yeah. after legend right yeah, yeah. And she had something on tv that she did um yeah, she was a thing there for a while. She, and, and, I yeah. mean, Ferris Bueller too. Yeah, yeah. Right? But yeah, she just kind of went away. It's was she bad. the Was she the girl in? Uh, no, nah, that wasn't Queen, her. Was, I want to say Queenie. Was it Queenie? Yeah, on maybe TV? that might have been a series yeah. on TV. Can't believe I'd actually remember that. Um, anyway, look, it's called Apprentice to Murder. There's a murder in it, and there's an apprentice, and uh, that's kind of all you need to know. Donald Sutherland is uh, it, it plays this um, kind of folk healer who runs afoul of the people around them and uh you know there then there's a then there's kind of a everything goes in a really macabre line and things get a little dark and and sleazy can't really say it any other way uh this is a special edition has some uh some interesting stuff on it there's an audio commentary by uh Brian Reisman uh there's a uh, a new video interview with Kat Ellinger, the film author and film critic, uh, about the, uh, the 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 genre of religious horror, which is kind of a genre, I guess, if you can sort of include things like uh, mm. believers and the Exorcist and stuff like that. Yeah. The Omen, even the Omen, would probably qualify for that. And uh, makeup supervisor uh, gets an interview on here as well. So there's that, and then there's also two other films from Arrow: Flowers in the Attic. Which has a kind of a cult following because it's it's based on a uh, rather famous book from 1979, uh, which you know had all kinds of sequels and sold millions and millions and millions of copies. Um, you know the subject. I mean, you get into some pretty icky child abuse stuff with the subject matter here. Flowers in the Attic is, uh, uh, you know. Uh, Louise Fletcher is a scary lady in this. Let's just say that she's scarier than she is yeah. in uh, Cuckoo's Nest. She's she's all she's the worst grandmother ever, and she's the last grandmother that you ever want to be uh, locked up in the attic of. 
That's bad grammar, but anyway. Young Christy Swanson also in this thing. Uh, Jeb Stewart uh, Adams from The Goonies. And, um, you know, I don't recommend it, but it has a cult following for a reason. And lastly, Hitchhike to Hell from Arrow. Uh, Hitchhike to Hell is a... Um, you know, it was it was directed by Irvin Berwick, who is kind of a cult director, and I don't really know anything about Irvin Berwick. Uh, he made a movie called Malibu High, which didn't exist when the movie was made. It does now. Mm. Uh, very weird. But uh, he made this in 1977, kind of a late exploitation film of its kind. And uh, it's about a guy who, you know, d- delivers dry cleaning and... Um, while he all in along he while he delivers dry cleaning, he picks up hitchhikers and he uh, punishes them. That's it. It's uh, it's apparently inspired by some real life serial killer stuff. A little bit icky, but because it's an exploitation film from 1977, it it has kind of a, a period veneer that is you know. Tim, tell us what wonderful criterions we have. This oh week. <laughs> well, Day Trippers, man, I love this movie so much. Uh, Greg Greg Matola's first film, first feature film, anyway. Um, uh, Greg would go on to give us Superbad and uh, direct Adventureland, all kinds of great movies. But this very, very first film of his uh, just marked uh, is one of those moments of where a sort of talent uh, showed up and hung around for a very, very long time. Uh, Hope Davis, uh, Stanley Tucci, Ann Mira, Parker Posey, Liv, Sh- Liv Shriver, uh, Campbell Scott in the movie. It's just this absolutely wonderful little movie about these ordinary people uh, uh, living their lives. Uh, in, 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 in this neat little indie film uh, that we wonder, that where we wander around with this as they ride around on this train. It's just the sweetest movie. Uh, this is the 4K digital restoration approved by the director, uh, Greg Matola. Uh, it's uh, got all kinds of great stuff on it, including uh, commentary tracks from uh, Steven Soderbergh uh, and Hope and, and Parker Posey and Liev and Campbell Scott. Uh, and uh, and another short f- film that Greg made back in 1985. Um, th- this was just a really neat it's a good film. Movie. It's a good. Uh, it's still one of Matola's best films. Yeah, it's a wonderful movie. You no, know, just the simplest, most wonderful yeah. little movie. Parker Posey's uh, so good. In yeah, it. uh, so uh, good. 1996. Uh, needless to say, did the junket for this. Um, <laughs> Mate Juan, John Sales film. Uh, fantastic. Just this fantastic film. Uh, John Sales, uh, who's John Sales' story needs to be told in a film. Yeah, it does. Uh, because he's really, uh, he was a novelist. Yeah. Uh, yeah, John Sells uh, made uh, Karen Kasama's career. He sure did. Uh, literally gave her the money to, to make did. her film. Made a girl uh, fight. Uh, Brother from Another Planet. When I was you know, in the early 80s, when that movie came out, I was just, it was just, a, it was like, it was as if uh, a black filmmaker had made a movie. Yeah. And then you go and you look and see this guy, John Sales, who's from this particular um, uh, station in life. So this is made one, written and directed by John Fels, Sales, gives us a young Chris Cooper. Southern 1920s coal mining country. Yep. Uh, uh, the coal miners are trying to form a union. The coal mining company doesn't want that union. It's a brutal, ugly time. This is, of course, all historically true. They bring in these black and Irish uh, strike breakers to, uh, to work. To, uh, and they're sort of like caught between Italian strike breakers. And, and, and they do this on purpose because they know that the, even with the Irish and the Italians, gonna, there's going to be all kinds of racial in, in, enmity between these groups of people. And these, these blacks and these Italians and Irish are sort of caught between the coal mining company and these coal miners. Uh, James Earl Jones, Mary McDonald in the movie. It's just David Strathairn, young David Strathairn, Gordon and clap. This is just really a wonderful, wonderful film uh, from John Sales. Again, uh, 4K digital restoration uh, supervised by Sales. Uh, 
uh, a number of wonderful um, uh, documentaries on the making of the film that include people like James L. Jones, who you don't get to see much of uh, anymore, and Mary McDonald and David Strathairn. Uh, in an interview with the composer Mason Daring, uh, a short documentary on the impact of this film. This film had a lot of impact on a whole bunch of things that were going on uh, uh, during that period, uh, including because um, uh, we were in 1987, we had not long before that come off uh, a bunch of strikes to completely destroy the way unions worked in this country, including the air traffic controller strike. Uh, which was about 1980, 1981. So this film sort of played into a whole bunch of that stuff. Uh, beautiful movie, Criterion Collection, Mate One. One more for me, When We Were Kings, the 1996 documentary. So good. About the 1974 fight in yeah. Zaire between Muhammad Ali and George Foreman. Uh, George Foreman, of course, had already won the title from yeah. Ali previously. The, the uh, great Don King uh, offers both fighters $5 million apiece to fight one more time. They accept. How much did Don King make out of that? Oh, Don probably. <laughs> and, and this is yeah, people, where did Don get the money? Because Don had to get the money. Don yeah. got the money from the dictator yeah. in Zaire. Yeah. And, and that fight was more than a fight. It was a, it was a musical festival. All kinds of stuff was going on. B.B. King fun. was there. Uh, uh, James Brown performed there. There was this whole art thing going on there. And this filmmaker uh, sort of filmed it all. Uh, and it was an extraordinary moment. I, look, there had been the thriller in Manila, yeah. Uh, uh, but this 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 battle in Zaire um, uh, was 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 quite a thing. The rumble in the jungle is what they called it. And uh, you know, it was George Foreman was ten years younger than Ali, ten years younger than Ali, and and Ali said a few things that uh, that, that that are regrettable. Um, but captured in this film, which I think makes yeah, yeah, it, it makes it a better film. Makes it a better film. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah. Again, a new 4K digital transfer, five uh, zero surround sound, uh, remastered audio track. That Soul Power documentary, which features a lot of that music we're yeah. talking about, the BB King and all this stuff. In in this film, interesting. Uh, of course, we have all the characters from the day back in 1974, yeah. but we also have folks reflecting on the events of the day. So we have Spike Lee in this movie in 1996, yeah. reflecting on what that event meant to young black folks back in 1974. Me and him would have been about the same age in 74, 13, 14 yeah. years old. And all of these things were huge uh, in, in, in the community. Uh, when we were watching this. So this is, this is just an extraordinary film. When We Were Kings, directed by Leon Gask. Don King is 88 years old. Yeah. Just wanna, probably still making trouble. Just want to let people know that. Yeah. Uh, I got just a few more here, and then we're going to talk about Swan Princess and uh, dive into that. Um, three from the Warner Archive collection. The uh, Fearless Vampire Killers, these are all uh, manufacturer-on-demand titles. Fearless Vampire Killers is a uh, Roman Polanski movie with Roman Polanski in it that actually is uh, not what you would normally expect from a Polanski film. It's, it's a, it's, I mean, it's a bit of a satire. It's funny, but it's weird. It's not even like a hammer thing. It's just, it's just Polanski kind of going completely nuts, and it's why he was sort of a cult figure at the time. Not just for Rosemary's Baby, but for stuff like this, which really just went completely off the rails. Sharon Tate is in the film, so it def definitely is something you might want to watch along with uh, with uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, which kind of dovetails or, or, or nods to this in, in certain areas. Yeah. Um, but yeah, this is a completely bananas spoof satire movie that just belongs uh, to its era. 
uh, Jackie Chan and Mr. Nice Guy, which includes the original extended cut. There's a great, great bit on the uh, on the Warner Archive podcast with uh, my good friend Jeff Briggs, who works over there at uh, at the Warner uh, at, at for Warner Brothers in the in the uh, and you know has his fingers on this. Look, here's the thing: Jeff is like the world's greatest expert on all things Hong Kong cinema, more so than me, more than our buddy Andy Klein. I'd even put him up against our our friend David Shute who's sort of the original uh, guy on all this stuff. Jeff just knows his stuff inside out. He was an invaluable resource when I wrote my Jackie Chan book. And uh, what Jeff says is uh, is just superb. So um, I would direct you there to all expertise on this film. Sammo Hung directed this. Mr. Nice Guy is, uh, is one of the last really good Jackie Chan films before he kind of started to get too old and, and overexposed in Hollywood to mm. keep doing what he had always done before. But um, it's a really fun film. It's very, very good. And uh, I, I, I just think it's, uh, I, I think it's, it's well worth having in any collection. Um, also, Days of Wine and Roses with oh, Jack Lemmon. Yeah. Movie that doesn't get enough credit because I think uh, when, the la- when The Lost Weekend won uh, all the accolades roughly around the same general time by the time Jack Lemmon does Days of Wine and Roses yeah. the the alcoholic genre had sort of had all the steam taken yeah, out of yeah, it yeah. but Days of Wine and Roses in many respects is a better film than The Lost Weekend wonderful uh, performance uh, it's tremendous it's just tremendous Blake Edwards directed it one of his handful of great dramas and uh, as as a, as a study of alcoholism, um, Jack Lemmon and Lee Remick are still. I mean, it still it still holds. It's it's one of the best. It does. It hasn't dated at all. It's just absolutely terrific. Uh, Jack Klugman, Jack Lemmon's um, uh, you know buddy and screen partner, also shows up in this great Henry Mancini music, as you would expect for a Blake Edwards movie from the time. Uh, it is beautiful on Blu-ray and uh, highly, highly recommended. This movie is as powerful now as it always was. It is just absolutely beautiful. Uh, I'm going to talk for a moment about The Swan Princess. So The Swan Princess came out in 1994, and it was Rick Rich, who was one of the former, uh, sort of a second generation of Disney animators who came from the, from the, you know, the Nine Old Men, uh, along with Don Bluth. Rick Rich went out on his own, as Don Bluth did, and, and uh, uh, made The Swan Princess, which is a, a certainly Disney-inspired in many ways, but it has been an unbelievable franchise since 1994. It, has, uh, it is right up there with Land Before Time as far as an animated franchise that outnumbers all the others. They keep making these, and they keep being successful. I had a chance to talk to Rick Rich and his producing partner, Selden Young, about the uh, 25th anniversary of the film, which is out now in a beautiful, beautiful Blu-ray from Sony, and uh, which can also be found in 4K on digital. There's no 4K on disc, but there's 4K online and uh, download and streaming. Uh, so the digital of this is where you get the 4K, uh, but you can also get the Blu-ray, which is gorgeous as well. And, and I have a particularly interesting relationship with the Swan Princess. They were promoting the hell out of this thing in 1994 when I was at the Cannes Film Festival. And they threw a party there at the castle just outside of Cannes, the Lanapool Castle, where a lot of parties get thrown. The moving picture party used to be thrown there every year. Um, but what the people, what the, what the Swan Princess people did at that time is beyond belief. They were promoting the movie. Suddenly, uh, all my press friends and I, my, my Swedish and Canadian friends, we all got invitations to the party. It's a, like a formal thing. We sat down. We had the most opulent dinner. It was like you were really in a fairy tale. These incredible desserts that were done up looking like swans. 
And then there was a fireworks show at the end. You got to stand on the balconies looking out into the ocean, and fireworks were shut off. Most amazing party I've ever been to. I kid you not. It's the most amazing, elegant, fairy tale party in the world. And, of course, they showed you footage from the movie because you're there to promote mm. the movie. Mm. But uh, Rick Rich is a classy guy. Selden Young, classy guy. They made a classy movie. It still holds up. And uh, they have wonderful special features on this, making up stuff, five sing-along songs, Swan Lake done as a fairy tale Disney-style film. It's a delight. So with that, I'm going to take everybody out on uh, this wonderful interview that I had with Rick Rich and Selden Young. Uh, I am so thrilled to be uh, able to talk right now with uh, Selden Young, producer of The Swan Princess, and Rick Rich, uh, director of The Swan Princess. I have that right. Am I correct? Uh, you you do. need to add one thing on Rick. He is also a producer. Uh, also a producer. So, so, uh, but you guys, you're the you're the creative team that made the Swan Princess possible, and um, you know that was such. Uh, I, I, we, you, you know this, and I mentioned this before we got on, but it's. Um, in 1994, when The Swan Princess was made, uh, you had a big bash at the Cannes Film Festival, and I was there with some Swedish friends and a Canadian friend, and um, we they all agreed it was the it was the best time that they ever had at the Cannes Film Festival, and I, I that was my third year there. My Canadian friend had gone for 15, 16, 17 years. We'd never seen anything like it. You threw the party of all parties at a film festival that is known for having the party of all parties. Um, but it was really amazing. I want people to understand. It was this wonderful film, a wonderful fairy tale film, one of the few that is made sort of outside of the Disney framework. And uh, you threw this amazing, classic, wonderful party with desserts and and uh, and dinner. And it was it was a classy affair. And it ended up with uh, fireworks. And it was all at the castle at La Napoule. And it was really just amazing. So. Uh, you 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 created memories, both real and in the movie. Um, talk for just a second about the the origin of the Swan Princess, when it came to be. Obviously, I'm going to guess that Disney films were an inspiration, and that you kind of wanted to, to elevate yourselves to that bar. But after the other animation that you'd been doing independently, what led from that to this? So can I before that question is addressed, uh, Wade? I want to respond to the party that was at Cannes and why we did what we did, that that we thought that if we could put on something so exquisite, which included all of our characters in costume, um, in the primary film festival, it would set this film in iconic nature forever. Now, yeah. it took us a while to get there, and and we may have discussions about that. That being said, we also held a big party on the 20, for the 25-year anniversary, and it was a wonderful bash. And people are saying the same thing at that party that we held in Hollywood on the 24th of October. Now, let Rick, I want Rick to talk about where the origins came from, because he had such a great upbringing to get to where it's at. So, obviously, I... You know, loved all the the Disney classics, and when we were talking about doing an animated feature, our first one, I wanted to do something that was in the vein of a Cinderella, 
a, a Snow White or a Sleeping Beauty, something that would have the classic fairy tale anim, uh, elements and something that would be timeless. And we searched and searched, searched. It was really a, a long search to finally find something. We found, um, obviously, Swan Lake, which is also a, a fairy tale and as famously known as the ballet. And, um, and so that's what we decided that we were going to try to do. And it wasn't an easy fairy tale to crack, story-wise, but um, time was on our side, and we got it, and, um, and we made a, a classic fairy tale. And I think now, 25 years later, it's been proven that it has withheld and has upheld through uh, 25 years. And, and you guys have, you know, you've, you've been sort of uh, working with the Swan Princess world many, many times over since then as well. And, and it, 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 it's, it's done well for you. Uh, and, and, it, and it has a following. I mean, it has an un, almost uncanny following. I can't think of any other animated world that is comparable other than perhaps The Land Before Time, which Universal has, has turned into a, a mini franchise as well. Talk for that for, about that for a second, too. So we like to claim... Uh, Wade, that we are the world's most successful independent animated movie franchise. And we kind of classify that because if you, even if you take Land Before Time as kind of the, the other film out there that was animation that's outside Disney, I mean, there are many, but not with the kind of franchise presence that Swan Princess has, that uh, having 10 full-length feature films, name 10 film franchises that have that. Swan Princess and um, Land Before Time are the only two animated films that sit in that category, but it is owned by Universal. Yeah. So, it, it, you know, it, it puts us in a very unique place. And, and you're right, our audience, it, it took a while you know what? With having a great story that Rick created with the team, turn this into a franchise that those children that were brought up on it 25 years ago, 24 years ago, 23 years ago, became their favorite film of all time. Mm-hmm. And today, them being millennials, they want to grow their kids up on it the same way so they're doing the same thing uh bringing them up on it so all of a sudden we got this presence of hundreds of millions of fans worldwide in about 130 something odd countries and i know a lot of them and and you know my friends in sweden still will email me and say you remember that that great party and that, that i just love the movie and I'm, my my daughter loves it and it's true it, it really has a, a transcendent uh, legacy Rick, tell me, here, here's the challenge that I always kind of wanted to know how you tackled. You know, it's, it's one thing when you're, you're Walt Disney, you're dealing with uh, Snow White or with Sleeping Beauty, where there isn't, it doesn't exist in another medium to any really memorable degree. You do kind of get to sort of invent it from scratch. But Swan Lake is obviously Swan Lake. Everyone, everyone thinks of the ballet. Everyone thinks of that music. It, it already exists in another medium. How do, you, how do you tackle a story like that and say, 
we're going to be faithful to it insofar as people are familiar with it in the other form, but we're going to reinvent it in a way that lets it be its own thing in another medium. How do you, that, that seems to me an almost uh, really daunting challenge, and you pulled it off. How did you tackle that? Well, I think we tackled it by using the classical elements of animation. You know, we needed to, um, I think it, the ultimate story is kind of a downer because I think the swan dies at the end. We knew we couldn't do that. And, and so we wanted to create a love story. So everything that we did was trying to build the love between Derek and Odette and show them in a really strong relationship. And I don't think to this very day that there is a love relationship in an animated feature that, that comes anywhere near to what we accomplished in The Swan Princess. And, uh, and I think that's one of the things that has really propelled it and, and held its interest. Um, you know, the, the other thing was that we knew we needed to add in, characters that would be funny and entertaining. And so all of these elements had to be added to the story. We kept the name Odette. We kept mm -hmm. the name Rothbart. The prince in it is called Siegfried. We didn't think that was going to fly with today's audience. And so Derek seems to be a timeless name, Prince Derek. And, and then there was the elements of, of the magic that was required in it. And um, the thing that really helped us is when we came up with the moon. We needed a, an item, some kind of a magical thing that we could uh, use for a timing where Odette would be a, a swan for some of the time and a, and a human the other time. And then there had to be a time when she couldn't change. And the moon, when we came up with the moon idea, we were so excited, so excited because there's that one night every month when the moon doesn't shine. And that, that's, that really is what cracked the story for us. Talk, what, what was your creative process? I mean, how collaborative was it? How did you lead the story meetings? How, what, what was the process by which you, when you say you cracked it, I mean, what kind of work and process went into to cracking those problems? Well, you have to realize that Brian and I worked on the script for almost two years. That's mm -hmm. where it all happened. Um, and then, you know, we had to have a really strong script. What's really interesting, though, is when we, we started to test the picture after we had some animatics up, and we found out that, hmm, the, the audience wasn't really excited so much about Derek. And we had to go back in, and we made him into an incredible guy instead of this really somebody that they really didn't like it was really interesting yeah and so if you look at what we changed we changed he was the one that the only person left in the kingdom that absolutely believed that odette was still alive and he was going to find her and he was going to practice 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 and he would never his mother said he will roger says he will never marry anyone and you know except Odette. And, and so all of a sudden and he was we turned him into this really kind and absolutely totally committed to this and it changed the uh, uh, feeling that the audience had about Derek. So, no, so, just, so just so I understand, so you, you had written the script and then you created animatics and you did a, did a rough assembly of animatics to, to represent the story and it was based on reaction to that that you went back and changed the script. Is that, do I we understand did. that correctly? We did, yep. There was another step, a couple of steps in there. Um, yes, I, I'm, I'm simplifying it, but but yeah, I, uh, yeah, that, that's, that's, that, that's simplifying it. Just you know, even even as 
I got involved and our other producer got in, got involved in this entire process. Rick had this very interesting setup in the studio. I thought your audience might be interested in this really interesting setup that every time we came in to look at the other films that we were doing, that he had storyboards all along kind of cork board that he had all set up. And he said, let me tell you where we're at on all the storyboards. So it wasn't animatics first, it was storyboards after they'd written the script and then they had to rewrite it again and rewrite it again. So it was constantly in that flux of change in storyboarding and then taken to animatics to be tested. And sometimes in testing, several different times, we were a long ways along and we had to change sequences of that story, which was very costly. Wow. I mean, and, and, and you know, so much of this has changed now with the move to 3D animation and, and, and uh, computers. Um, and, and I think we've lost something, too. I mean, it's, I hear this from a lot of people who say that um, it forces you to be more deliberative when you are shooting film versus digital, when you are typing on a typewriter versus a word processor, when you're editing film versus nonlinear. And, and it seems to me that animators often see, feel the same way about uh, 2D hand-drawn animation versus doing it on a computer, that it forces you to be deliberative in a way that you, you might not be when you can sort of change anything on the fly. Um, is that your experience as well? Do you feel that we've lost maybe something in the process? Well, we've lost and we've gained. You know, that's, that's the interesting thing about CGI. Um, the, the difficult thing in 2D animation is always getting the artist that can draw the character on model. That is, that is, even at Disney, that is a struggle. That was always a struggle. CGI, you don't have that. You don't. You design the character, and no matter what angle you shoot it at, if she looks right or he looks right or whatever the character is looks right. What you lose, what I what I think we lose is the looseness that is we're capable to get in the actual human drawing of a character. Um, you know, the human and, and and just running Swan One versus what we're doing now in CGI, there is a looseness, there is a broadness. We can change the shape of a mouth to anything we want. We can stretch the body, we can do all of that. And you can't do that in CGI. It gets much more com complicated to do that. So there's a trade-off in camera. Camera moves in, in 2D are pretty much straight in or to the side. You know, They're just pretty much linear moves. CGI, we can make it look just like a live action camera. So, so there's lots of trade-offs. and. Um, both have their strong points and both have their weaknesses. So let me I guess jump we in on this. Yes, let, let me jump on this too, Wade, because um, there, uh, one of the specific things you lose when um, you're going from 2D to 3D is we're so deliberate in what we do because it takes a lot of time. Realize that there are, we got up to as high as 350 artists that were, were drawing and painting this. Wow. And all of these people absolutely love what they do. And you're talking about, when Rick talked about two years to create the script, you're talking anywhere between five and six years to get to the point where you can release the film. And so everything's deliberate, and the love of what they do comes through to the audience. Where when you're doing CGI, it's a short period of time to get it done. 
But I will tell you, even with CGI, the way Rick does it and many others don't, there's a deliberate nature. You're doing storyboarding the same, almost the same way. Some of them do it on the computer. Some of them we have to scan in because they still do it by hand. And so, you know, Rick goes through a process that makes it still has a similar template to the way we used to do 2D. It just has to pour it off in a faster way, a lot less people, and the trade-offs start to play in. I don't know, Rick, when, if you want to add to that. Yeah, let, let me say one other thing that's, that, that I think is really worth saying, you know, because this really came out at our 25th anniversary party just a, a week or so ago. We had a lot of our original staff and team came, came to the showing because we had remastered the picture and we showed it on the big screen again and had been shown big screen for 25 years. And, and the most rewarding thing to me was that have the, the old staff come up and say, what a fun time it was working on that picture. They've never had it since. And they'd never had it before. There was a camaraderie. There was a love. There was total dedication. We had something to prove by doing that picture. Every one of us, Every one of us who worked on it wanted to prove something, and it gave us an opportunity to do something that very few at that time had really been able to do. And, uh, and we look back on it with the fondest of memories, which is really quite an accomplishment. How do you manage when you have 350 artists? I can't even imagine how you manage that. I mean, I know everyone has their different teams and their departments and their roles, but that just seems like a really, really daunting process to keep everyone on the same page and to make sure that you have uh, a, a cohesive vision. How how difficult is that? Well, you have to realize, you know, I had been trained at Disney, and I knew the process backwards and forwards, and and so I don't, I didn't work with all 350 directly. I worked with my key people, my key animators, my my key storyboard artist. Right. Uh, my key background painters, I only worked with the key people, and then they had their staff that they worked with. And so it, when, you, when you start fanning it down to everyone, it, it, it's a very manageable kind of a thing, a very, very exciting kind of a thing. And, so and it really, you know it, it, I was going to say, it, it really is still sort of the same process then that Walt innovated originally and which has sort of trickled out to, to everyone since that time, since those early days in the has. 30s. Well, I'm yes. I mean, we did we did the Swan Princess pretty much just like I did work on the features at Disney. Absolutely, yeah. that's exactly how we did it. That's how I was trained. I was trained by uh, uh, some of the you know one of the nine old men. And yeah. It was just fantastic. So I, I had a great I have, a, I have great memories and a great appreciation for what I, Disney taught me. Gave me what, the credentials to do this. What what does the future hold for the uh, for the Swan Princess as a as a franchise as a, as sort of an iconic film and everything else that's tied to it? What's the uh, what does it hold for the future? What does it still mean to you guys? Listen, we've uh, we put our heart and soul into it for the last twenty five years, uh, having nine present films out along with a tenth that will come out next year. Um, we think based upon what has happened with our um, remastering, restoring to ultra high def 4K will set us for the next 25 plus years. It's a forever film. And um, there's 
future opportunity all the way coming down the pike even to potential TV, which we have a uh, something that we're working on there that's a little bit of an offshoot, to what we think could be one of the biggest um, box office hits worldwide, primarily because you marry the Swan Princess with all those worldwide dancers that know Swan Lake that also know Swan Princess, that a live-action version like Disney does could be an enormous success. It's just a matter of time. Well, gentlemen, thank you for speaking with me today. It's uh, and congratulations. Twenty-five years uh, a film legacy is a rare thing, and uh, you know it's it's rare that that people create any number of films. Uh, certainly, one much less more than one that uh, that sort of lingers in the in the in the consciousness for that long a period of time. So you've you've contributed something really really wonderful to film legacy and i thank you for it uh, not just for me and, and on behalf of my friends and my family but certainly on behalf of the, the millions of people who have uh, continued to make the swan princess a beloved franchise um, it's it's a really it's a really a, an amazing achievement anything th- that you would like to add before we uh, we kind of wrap this up yes i i want to add one real important uh, piece to the legacy our belief, pretty strong belief, and I think we're pretty well right, Swan Princess was the last fully hand-drawn, hand-painted, cell-animated film to be released in North America. Wow. Yep. That is legacy. Gentlemen, Rick Rich, Selden Young, uh, thank you so much. Congratulations again, and uh, we look forward to all the many, many other great films that you are going to make for us in the future. Really looking forward to it. Thank you again. Thanks, Wade. All right. Thank you, Wade. Bye-bye. Thanks. Bye-bye. Thank you.